things first. This is about truth telling. I have no agenda. Zero. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what no mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break. The heart of the brave. The soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up. Welcome. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest edition of No Mercy with yours truly, Stephen A. Smith, coming at you as I love to do every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Any place you can find podcasts, check your listings. It'll be there. This is a dicey subject that I'm about to get into. Because I know that when we talk about things, whether it's politics, it's news, it's social issues, it's all of this other stuff, you know, a lot of times people want to avert their eyes, their ears, their conscience away from serious issues that percolate and permeate our minds and our hearts. But you know something? There's an election that's brewing. It's less than two weeks away. And one of the things we ain't going to do on this show is run. We're not going to run from issues. We're not going to run from problems. We're not going to run from challenges. We're going to talk like we're supposed to talk. And today I got a special guest that's coming on the show. And this guest is going to be talking to me about a lot of things pertaining to this nation. The kind of trials and tribulations he anticipates we will endure, particularly if we don't handle ourselves, if we don't go to the polls. Now, to you young whippersnappers out there, that's right, that's what I'm going to call y'all. Wet behind the ears, breath smelling like Similac. Constantly thinking that there's so much that's going on and no matter what's going on in this society, it's not going to affect you. Oh, yes, the hell it is. This is not a podcast where I'm going to tell you how to vote, who to vote for. I'm not going to take partisan positions like some people I know. I'm not going to do that. I go on a case by case basis. And you should, too. You should be paying attention to what's going on in the real world as we speak. You got to understand when there's people complaining about Roe v. Wade, you may not be a woman, you a man. But your mama, it's a woman. Your aunts, it's a woman. Your sisters, it's a woman. Daughters, that's a woman. Your girlfriend, your wife, that's a woman. So if it's pertinent to her and it matters to her, then it should matter to you. Gun control. Second Amendment right Damn it, Don't you dare think about taking my Second Amendment rights. That's what some people say. In the streets of Chicago, St. Louis, Baltimore, and other places, New York, there are folks who would beg to differ. Ladies and gentlemen, you 18 to 34, you 25 to 49, that's relevant to you too. Guess why? Because it's relevant to a 17-year-old. It's relevant to a 15-year-old. Hell, in this day and age, it's relevant to children because we've seen them become victims 
at the hands of gun violence. Sandy Hook, Connecticut, does that ring a bell? Columbine, does that bring a bell? Uvalde, Texas, does that ring a bell? My Second Amendment rights, I'm holding on to it. Some people would beg to differ. It's relevant. All of these things are things that you have to pay attention to. You also have to pay attention to the economy. You also have to pay attention to inflation. You have to pay attention to the specter of an impending recession. Why? Because that affects jobs. It affects the economy. It affects your ability to pay your bills. It affects your ability to eat. It affects your ability to have a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food on your table. It's relevant. Which means how you vote and who you elect to put in the office is relevant. That's why my next guest is going to be relevant as damn self. Ladies and gentlemen, let me pose a question to you. Does it feel like we're on the verge of a new civil war in this country? Got news to you. It sure feels that same way to me. There's countless examples of lingering white supremacy. That doesn't mean all white people have that mentality. It doesn't mean most white people have that mentality. And I'm going to tell you something that I've said to numerous white people on many, many occasions. If I'm talking about a racist, if I'm talking about a bigot, if I'm talking about somebody who engages in white supremacy and that ain't you, what the hell are you personalizing it for? Folks can decipher the difference between a racist and a God-fearing, decent human being who cares about his fellow woman and man. And you don't have to share the same hue, the same pigmentation, the same cultural identity and background, the same God even, to have a core decency about you. If you ain't them, If you ain't some white supremacist, if you don't believe you're naturally superior to a black man or a Latino or somebody like that, we ain't talking about you. The hell you personalizing it for? Pay attention. So I'm going to say it again. There are countless examples of lingering white supremacy in the United States of America today from bias in the criminal justice system and policing the battle in education to accurately teach the true history of this country, the rollback of abortion rights and healthcare, which I alluded to earlier, housing discrimination, don't get me started with that. I can go on and on. But I know you get the point. It's red states versus blue states. Does it feel like a civil war to you? It damn sure does to me. You know why? Every time I turn on CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News, if that don't look like a damn civil war, what does? Take the same news, same facts, same information, throw it out there and disseminate it to the masses, and depending on which channel you're watching, you'll get a completely different spin. That's civil war, ladies and gentlemen. That's when truth is usurped. By my perspective on it versus yours. That's what we're talking about here. For those who weren't around for the first civil war, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. 
The American Civil War was fought between the United States of America and the Confederate States of America. The Confederate States of America was a collection of 11 southern states. Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, Alabama, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas. They left the Union in 1860 and 1861. The conflict began primarily as a result of the longstanding disagreement over the institution of slavery. I got my research, y'all. I ain't just talking. Abraham Lincoln, in case you don't remember, was the president of the United States during the Civil War. The issues of slavery and central power divided the United States at that time, like I just articulated. The North had more men and war materials than the South. Ulysses S. Grant commanded the troops for the North. And Robert E. Lee was for the South. Clearly, because the North had more men and war materials than the South, the North won the Civil War. After the war was over, the Constitution was amended to free the slaves to assure equal protection under the law for American citizens and to grant black men the right to vote. That was 1860 to 1861. So why was there a Voting Rights Act that needed to be passed in 1965, over 100 years later? Why was there a Civil Rights Act that needed to be written in the law in 1964? Because despite the laws that were on the books, Despite the fact that the North had beaten the South in a civil war. Despite the fact that the Constitution was amended to free the slaves. The laws were ignored. Sound familiar? Does it ring a bell? Does it ring a bell, ladies and gentlemen? Laws that are on the books. Completely ignored. Shoved aside. Because one side thought we ain't trying to listen to a damn thing. These laws supposedly say you people trying to take over our country. And what happened? Mayhem. Chaos. Hell, some would label it insurrections. Today, this is year 2022, by the way. Many of those same Confederate states are still battling. Many are being accused of suppressing votes, obviously of rolling back laws like Roe v. Wade, restructuring the Supreme Court, which Donald Trump did. Never was a Republican in his life, but damn it, those right wingers found somebody that catered to their fears, one could argue. Trump didn't have any support in the initial stages of him running for the presidency. But when he said, we're going to build a wall and the Mexicans are going to pay for it. And he started talking and stoking the fears of a white populace who believed they were disintegrating before our very eyes and something needed to be done to stop the diminishing impact that they were having, he spoke their language, catapulted to the top. And now he's got a damn near cult following, some people would say. I'm not going to use that language. I'm just quoting others. 
because I don't want to be incendiary. I just want to be factual. That's what they're saying, guys. That's what they're talking about. And guess what? They're winning. Some have even floated the idea of seceding. And how did we get here? Two words. Donald Trump. Unlike communication of yesteryear, when a moment in time where social media has made information instantaneous. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm still amazed that I can send a tweet and within seconds, 5.7 million Twitter followers will see it. 5.7 million. You think I'm a marketer. What do you think about Donald Trump? He's a master. When he ran for office, what did he do? He marketed himself for the job. He lived on Twitter. Since joining the platform in 2009, Trump tweeted around 57,000 times, including about 8,000 times during the 2016 election campaign and over 25,000 times during his presidency. Unquestionably, he attacked immigrants, told us the U.S. was going to build a wall and that Mexico was going to pay for it. I already told you that. But guess what, y'all? He didn't just tweet about it. He actually flew to the Texas border stood on national television and showed us where he planned to build the damn thing. Remember Trump supporters? Remember how they cheered? I do. The man became a megaphone to an audience that felt they were losing their country and they weren't being heard at all. But you know something? That's what the facts tell you. That's what the visual tells you. But if you look in depth and you go deeper, You start thinking about something Dr. Martin Luther King alluded to. You know what it's called? It's called the drum major instinct. The drum major instinct. Let me tell you what Martin Luther King said back then. In the sermon, Dr. King acknowledged the fact that many people desire recognition, the need to be important, to surpass others, to achieve distinction, the desire to be first, to lead the parade, He calls this desire the drum major instinct. That's what he called it. I've got more. There comes a time that the drum major instinct can become destructive. If this instinct is not harnessed, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, it becomes a very dangerous, pernicious instinct. For instance, if it isn't harnessed and it causes one personality to become distorted, I guess that's the most damaging aspect of it. What it does to the personality. If it isn't harnessed, You will end up day in and day out trying to deal with your ego problem by boisting. Have you ever heard people that, you know, I'm sure you've met them, that really become sickening because they just sit up all the time talking about themselves? And they just boist and boist and boist. And that's the person who has not harnessed the drum major instinct. This is according to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm going to ask y'all again. Sound familiar? Wasn't it a president? That said everything's about Trump? Wasn't it a president that was as narcissistic as they come? Wasn't that the same president that wouldn't honor a war hero in John McCain because he got court? Quote. Wasn't that a president that wouldn't honor the late great representative John Lewis because he was never complimentary of me? 
Wasn't that the president that sat in silence with a smile on his face laughing for the cameras when Kanye West rolled up in the White House, in the Oval Office, with a MAGA hat on, calling Trump a superhero? Remember all of that? Remember how the president ate it up at the time? That's the drum, Major Instincts. That's what that is. King went on to say, do you know that a lot of the race problem grows out of the drum, Major Instinct? A need that some people have to feel superior. A need that some people have to feel that they are first and to feel that their white skin ordained them to be first. And they have said over and over again in ways that we see with our own eyes. And not only does this thing go into the racial struggle, it goes into the struggle between nations. And I would submit to you this morning that what is wrong in the world today is that the nations of the world are engaged in a bitter, colossal contest for supremacy. That sermon was delivered over 50 years ago. Sadly, alarmingly, frighteningly, it resonates today. Because as this election gets set to take place on November 8th, with a house threatening to tilt in one direction, a Senate threatening to also tilt in one direction, and a president who's talking about re-election when he's going to be 82 years old at that time. Ladies and gentlemen, we in world of trouble. No matter how old you are. And that's why my next guest is so important to listen to. Because for this show, he has some interesting thoughts about why we are in the civil war today and how we can win it if we first recognize we're in a war and then learn the lessons and follow the lead of those who have shown they know how to prevail. In fact, he wrote a book about it. Wait until you hear it. Don't go away. He's up next on No Mercy with Stephen A. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? My guest for this show has some very interesting thoughts about why we are in a civil war today and how we can win it. If we first recognize we're in a war and then learn the lessons and follow the lead of those who have shown they know how to prevail. In fact, he wrote a book about it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, he's a leading national political thought leader, author of the New York Times and Washington Post bestselling book. Brown is the new white. How the demographic revolution has created a new American majority. His latest book is called How We Win the Civil War. Securing a multiracial democracy and ending white supremacy for good. He hosts Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color conscious podcast on politics. I'm excited to have my next guest on. He is the one and only Steve Phillips. Welcome to No Mercy, sir. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. As the as the son of someone whose uh, dad was a doctor for the Cleveland Cavaliers in the 70s okay. and as okay. somebody who... In high school, went to the same basketball camp as Michael Jordan. I'm it's a particular pleasure to be with you. Well, please, the honor and privilege is all mine. And back then, the Cleveland Cavaliers, they weren't winning too much, though. 
That, that, that was long before LeBron James arrived. <laughs> my, I still remember my dad telling me 20 plus years ago, keep your eye on this guy named LeBron James. I'm like, yeah, that's right, right dad. Uh-huh. Yeah, he knew what he was talking about. No question about that. But evidently, so do you, because you've done some fascinating work throughout the years. And I'm very honored to have you on. Let me first say that. And consider this an education you're providing me, because I'm going to try to challenge you on a couple of things, but I sincerely doubt I'll be able to. Let's get to your book right now. You say something in the book I found quite interesting. We will not overcome until we govern as though we are under attack until we finally recognize that the time has come to finish the conquest of the Confederacy and all that it represents. Explain to our listeners what you're talking about. So I think the most, the the clearest illustration was what happened on January 6th, where we had an actual insurrection, where we had the majority of the Republican Party voting to throw out the election results that had been certified by all 50 governors, and that's what I, I talk in the introduction to the book about using the, the quote from Taylor Branch, the historian. They have a choice. Be- it was a choice between democracy and whiteness. And that you had people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing sweatshirts, saying MAGA Civil War, January 6, 2021, mm-hmm. storming the Capitol to stop the democratic peaceful transfer of power. But that's the culmination of what has really been 157, 162 years of fighting to keep this as a as primarily a white country and not a multiracial democracy. And I didn't even really realize that I was reading, until I was researching and putting the book together, the Civil War itself began when the losing side, the side that lost to the person that black people supported, refused mm-hmm. to accept the election results. So Lincoln was elected in November 1960, 1860. 1860. Right, 1860. Mm-hmm. Within a matter of weeks, South Carolina voted to succeed, and then a matter of months, the another six states voted to succeed. They refused to accept the election results and went to war. And then we think that we, you know, the war ended in 1865. They surrendered. Robert E. Lee supposedly surrendered on, on that on, the, on that Sunday. The end of that very week, John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln after hearing him give a speech talking about black voting rights and saying that's the last speech he'll ever give. And then they've been fighting ever since. They overthrew uh, Reconstruction after a short 10 years. And we had 100 years of legalized white nationalism and white supremacy in this country. And so this whole uh, fight around is this primarily a white country or is this a multiracial democracy has been going on. What I'm trying to uh, Mm -hmm. explain to people is it still going on? This is the essence of Trump's power. This is Trump was at four percent in the polls before he started attacking Mexicans in 2015, sending the signal he was the champion and defender of white people. And then he zoomed up in the polls and he went to first place and has never looked back. And so we remain in this battle around are we primarily going to be a white country or are we going to be a multiracial democracy? And unless we understand that and fight in that context, we're not going to be able to withstand the level of ferocity and attack that we're facing. You started off the book, How We'll Win the Civil War, with this compelling story about a mother and son named Lisa, who was a nurse, and Eric, a bartender from Nashville, Tennessee, who went to D.C. to participate in the January 6th insurrection. And make no mistake about it, you're talking to somebody who firmly believes it was an insurrection. Okay, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind about it. Lisa talked about why they made the trip. 
But tell the listeners what she told the New York Times in that interview, because they might not be aware. So it was a white woman and her son um, from uh, uh, Tennessee came to uh, the Capitol on January, well, came on the, the 4th, and they were there for mm-hmm. the, the rally on the 6th. Mm-hmm. And she says that we're tired of all these things that are happening in the country. Somebody has to stand up. I would rather die than be able to watch these different changes um, that are happening. And, and the essence of all of that has to do with the, with the demographic revolution, the changing racial composition of the country. The, uh, the, the uh, Homeland Security experts have outlined the rise in white domestic terrorism and white nationalism was tied to the, the, the Barack Obama's election and Barack Obama's uh, imminent election. And this, mm-hmm. and this has all been a backlash to that. And so that you had this, uh, uh, I illustrate those two people, just examples of the types of supposedly normal people, in a lot of ways was normal. That's something we have to realize, too, is this is deeply felt. So I was interjected because basically what you're saying is the presidency, the election, uh, where Barack Obama in 2008 won the presidential election, became president of the United States, first black man to become president of the United States. That was the tipping point? Is that what you're saying? It, yes. And so I have a, a chapter. So what I try to do the first half of my book is to go from the Civil War all the way up to the present to show how the Confederates have never stopped fighting. Their ideological and, in, in many ways, genealogical heirs have continued to fight. And so I, uh, my uh, chapter on, on Obama years I title uh, Fear of a Black President. And you have the people from the Department of Homeland Security whose job was to track terrorism and the rise in white uh, in domestic terrorism specifically point to a, a demonstrable increase in activity among white nationalists and white domestic terrorists that was directly tied in, uh, uh, temporally and, 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 and causally to first Obama's uh, uh, imminent election. And then his actual election. And that's where you see, and the, the Homeland Security experts have pointed to all of this increased activity that actually went on. And then I talk about the Trump chapter, which I titled Make America White Again, the series of white domestic terrorist incidents where people looked to and were inspired by, frankly, what Trump was doing to do like the Tree of Life Synagogue shooting in, 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 in Pittsburgh, which was- right. During the midterm elections, when they were trying to scare people in 2018 about the so-called Central American caravans, so Trump started that on a Monday. It actually was October 22nd, and then by the end of that week, Robert Bowers in Pittsburgh, who who went and shot the the, the uh, people in that synagogue, he specifically said, "There, the, the the people at this synagogue are helping these." criminals, as he saw it, in the caravan in Central America, he's not going to stand for it. He took his gun and went and shot people. So he heard what Trump was saying, and then he went and committed that act of mass murder. So there's a very clear through line of reaction to the diversification of the country. Mm-hmm. And this that's why this phrase that Taylor Branch had used, choice between democracy and whiteness, remains what we're battling with today. Here's where I struggle. Because I don't disagree with what you're saying and what facts you spewed. I mean, there's nothing to disagree with if they're factual. But you, you you make a statement in your book and you make it loud, very loud and clear, say it very loud and clear, what the national media and the politics won't say. 
The champions of the idea that America is primarily a white nation have never stopped waging a ferocious, intense, and often bloody civil war. That's what I wrote down here. And they're not about to stop now. Steve Phillips, here's where I come in. I'm not surprised by any of this. <laughs> right. It, it, to me, I think that, I don't want to say that we're, we're, we're blowing it up, we're embellishing it, because that comes across as if we're misrepresenting something. I'm not trying to imply that at all. But what I'm shocked by is how people are taken aback by what we're witnessing. Here's where I'm coming from. Once upon a time in the 80s, if I remember correctly, the white population was in the mid 80% of the American population. Um, as recently as a few years ago, according to the U.S. Census Bureau reports, according to my numbers, it had diminished to 60% and sliding. The Hispanic population in the United States had elevated from 8 to 10 to 13%, now at about 17%. According to that same Census Bureau report, it's projected to be at about 30% come the year of 2030. That combined with the African-American population, which was anticipated to be at about 13 or 14%, you're talking about over 40% of the American public being of a minority populace. So to me... The white populace dwindling before our very eyes in the United States of America would be cause for concern. Why are we acting as if this is such a shock? What am I missing, Steve Phillips? Well, it, it is fascinating how fundamental the both racism and the concept that this is a white country has been to the country, has been to the history of this country, and how little we want to actually talk about it. And okay. it makes people very uncomfortable. So Let's very, talk about it. Right. But the very first law passed around who could be a citizen in this country, who could be naturalized, become a citizen in 1790. says to be a citizen, you had to be a free white person. And that was the governing law up until the 1950s. And that was the practice of our immigration policy until the 1960s. So it's been in there. The Civil War itself a war in which the equivalent, modern-day equivalent of 7 million people were killed, Americans killing Americans, was about, could this was this a white country where white people could own and sell human beings who were black? And so it's so incredibly fundamental to who we have been as a society, but nobody wants to talk about it. And so that's the difficulty people want to, pre you know, they feel like it's, well, it, 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 it makes it worse by talking about it, whereas actually you have to grapple with it. Well, first of all, be specific. Who doesn't want to talk about it, A? And B, why don't they want to talk about it? Well, those are two interesting different questions, right? But so you're, you're I mean, you do, you do see a lot in the, in the sports, sports world, right? I keep thinking like okay. people get like, um, it's like, oh, the first, you know, person of color in this, a uh, 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 woman, uh, first woman of color as a general manager, et cetera. And I'm like, how long has this country been around that, right? <laughs> Instead of we, this is the first. You see it in the 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 head coaches in National Football League, right? Mm -hmm. All of the coaches that are, that are being appointed are white. And then like, oh, well, no, we got to go get um, Lovey Smith. So people don't want to, I think a lot of people in the media do not, and I think there's a feeling that it makes it worse by talking about it for some reason, rather than actually mm -hmm. confronting it. And so this, you saw this in Obama's campaign in 08. So there was all there were these uh, attempts to undermine Obama during the primary by trying to bring up comments that his uh, his pastor Reverend Wright had made to tar Obama with that. 
But he went on to national television and did his you know, famous race speech in April of 2008, where he laid out unapologetically and clearly that, that there has been a longstanding history and challenge in this country around grappling with racial equality. His advisors did not want him to give that speech. He gave it on his own conviction and understanding and insight into the electorate. But we have not, we have so long avoided the conversation that there's very little um, capacity or tolerance or knowledge or comfort mm-hmm. to grapple with these issues. I totally get you. Here's where my issue lies as well. Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008 and then again won re-election in 2012. Beat John McCain first, beat Mitt Romney the second go-round. I don't remember the exact number uh, because I don't have it in front of me. But tens of millions of people who voted for Barack Obama were white people. So when we talk about this subject in the Civil War that we're in the midst of, essentially, according to your book, and we take into account the fact that we've got these MAGA Republicans that have their positions, but they're diametrically opposed to other white people who might be conservative but don't align with their thinking. When you talk about this subject, You want us to tackle this with the fervor and the level of urgency it deserves, even though those same tens of millions of white people who voted for Barack Obama will likely vote with a liberal or progressive tilt. So where is the concern that you're talking about? I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I just want you to illustrate it for my audience. Well, I think that that's a very critical point because a lot of times people don't grasp. We talk about the, the diversification of the country. It'll be a majority of people of color. And that's what I really tried to lay out in my first book when I talk about there being a new American majority. And I say very clearly, and it's not just I say, it's I think all the data lays it out, I would say incontrovertibly, between the particularly Obama's elections, that there is, the overwhelming majority of people of color, 75% to 80%, combined with 38 to 40% of whites, which are those millions of whites who voted with us, that's a majority of the population. And I think that's critical to appreciate, right? because I because I talk about this stuff, people oftentimes think that like, you know, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm you know, dissing on white people or not supporting them. Right. I actually think that I'm the greatest champion of validating and speaking to progressive whites who I think get discounted so much in national politics. Everyone's saying, well, we have to get these, you know, the swing white voters in the middle. Throughout the history of this country, there have always been white people who have sided with racial justice from the really, it's it, it, at some different level, right? From, you know, Thomas Jefferson trying to put a condemnation of slavery into the Declaration of Independence and having that be cut out by the slaveholders to the abolitionists in the slave days to people like Vail Luizzo and James Reeb in the civil rights movement who gave their lives for uh, there to be uh, um, justice for people of color. So yes, to those people, they're part of this majority. And the people of color would not have the majority if we did not have those white allies. But the fundamental fight remains this definitional piece, this existential question of is this primarily a white country or is this primarily a multiracial democracy? 
But what about the argument that it might not, and certainly we're not going to say it might not be black and white. I don't want to go that far because to me, everything comes down to black and white in the United States of America. I think it's inescapable. But I also pay attention to conservatism versus progressivism. And I think when you look at progressivism, there are people in this woke society that we live in. And it's not so much that folks are for MAGA Republicans. It's that they're so against the progressivism that exists, this willingness to embrace and to tolerate everything. There seems to be no need for law and order. And I hate using that phraseology because I am aware that Nixon used it back in the day to curry votes and his favor by scaring folks about black folks and crime and all of this other stuff. I'm mindful of that, no doubt about it. But the flip side to it is that when you consider the world that we live in once upon a time, whether it's the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, as the liberals were climbing, whether it's the Jimmy Carter administration and then Reagan comes in and H.W. Bush, but then Clinton comes in after that, okay? And then you had Bush again as the son for a couple of terms and then Barack Obama comes in. When you look at our politics... The world that we live in, the United States of America, seems to aspire for more centralism, for lack of a better word. But with progressivism, they're just as extreme on the left as they claim the MAGA Republicans are extreme on the right. What do you say to people that say, it's not that we're for MAGA Republicans. It's not that we're for what they're proposing. It's that this stuff all the way over here on the left, we damn sure ain't for that either. What do you say to that? Well, this is what uh, Martin Luther King addressed in the uh, letter from a Birmingham jail, right? And he says that we right. may not just have, we, we don't fundamentally going to have to answer for the actions of the bad people, but for the silence of the good people. And so what do you do when you are, we are in a moment in time in politics where you have a man who did everything in his power to bring about actual fascism in this country? I mean, if you look at the definition of fascism, it, it's a, a, a leader strong leader whose appeals make nationalist appeals, who re- does not follow the democracy. And so trying to stay in power, as Trump was trying to do in January 6th, would have literally brought us into fascism. And the majority of Republican members of Congress voted for that on January 6th. A majority of them? Are you sure about that? A majority of them voted for that? A majority of the House members, and there's more of them okay. than there are in the Senate. And okay. so they've got all of those who are in, the, in Congress. And so then what do you say about, so clear, and then uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has written quite eloquently about, you know, Trump is the, you know, America's white president and how the whiteness is the essence of his power. So what do we do in a situation where you have people who are tacit and who are supportive or overlooking that? And so the vast majority of Republicans still want Trump to run again still want him to be president again. And so while they may not be leading edge in terms of the vociferousness of the, that this is going to be a white country, they're tolerant of the man who's trying to make that happen. So what do we do with that? I tell you what, uh, well, can I make a, can I tell you what my thoughts are about that, sir? May I, may I? I'd love to hear them. I don't think a vast majority of the politicians want Trump at all. They're at the mercy of Trump because he has a hold on a constituency that can affect 
their time in office. So maybe it's not about the mega Republicans. Maybe it's about the fact that you have individuals who don't care about country as much as they care about individual power, maintaining their position. And if this is the song and dance that they got to sing and sell to a constituency out there just to make sure they still have a seat on Capitol Hill at the table, they're willing to feign as if this is how they feel just to maintain their level of power. To me, I understand in a roundabout way, there's not really much of a difference because in the end, how you vote is what matters. And that's going to affect how the American people are governed over in terms of our lives being influenced. But I do think there's a subtle difference from the standpoint of somebody being able to look at you and have a conversation and behind Trump's back, wink, wink, and Steve Phillips is saying, look, I'm not with this guy. I mean, I'm at the mercy of this people. You want me to stay in office? I mean, this is the only way I can pull it off by pretending I, 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 I literally support this nonsense. What do you say to that? How should people feel about those folks? Well, what do we, what do, we do with that when we have people, we have profound inequality in the country? We have mm-hmm. profound inequality, which has been created and maintained by government policy in that the efforts to make it even worse or to block any types of attempts to bring about equality are, to- are are driven by the Trumps and the and the MAGA people of the world, and those okay. efforts are tolerated by those who are. It's like if uh, you look at the Montgomery bus boycott. I don't think everybody was actively saying yes, black folks should go to the back of the bus, but they allowed the situation to exist, and so right. they are therefore complicit through their silence. You talk about that, Steve Phillips, and, and and let me throw this at you. One of the things that I was thinking about with Roe v. Wade, for example. Obviously, the Democrats had something to do with the court being tilted in this dramatic fashion as it was. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God rest her soul, former Supreme Court justice, um, she didn't want to retire earlier than people had hoped she would. When Barack Obama was in office, that's never been confirmed to my knowledge, but speculation was that she wanted a woman to select her successor once she elected to step down from the Supreme Court justice, assuming that Hillary Rodham Clinton was going to beat Donald Trump. That ended up not happening. And as a result, Trump happened. And ultimately, she passed away. And by virtue of that, um, instead of the court being tilted 5-4, now it's tilted 3-6 because he was able to select three Supreme Court justices instead of just two in his time as president. So we look at it from that perspective. But here's the other thing that I wanted to bring up. When Roe v. Wade, essentially was overturned. The Supreme Court justice is basically saying it's a state's rights issue. You know, it shouldn't have been to us to begin with. There's a lot of people that are appalled by that, and rightfully so. I, for one, believe in a woman's right to choose. Um, I don't believe any man should be telling a woman what to do with their body. However, I do tell you this. Last time I checked, Democrats have control of the House. It's split evenly in the Senate, but the vice president is the final vote, and the president in the White House, is a Democrat. So isn't it possible that laws could be implemented, federal laws that could be passed through the House of Congress, brought to the president's desk and signed into law, where you have an abortion rights bill that you ain't worried about Roe v. Wade? Am I missing something when I say that? No, you're not. And that's a very good point. And it also gets to the point around what is at stake in these midterm elections is because basically you've had two of the Democrats, um, uh, you know, from West, West Virginia and Arizona blocking 
uh, and essentially siding with Republicans in this regard. But if you actually, if the Democrats pick up seats in the Senate, they elect, you know, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin and and, and Sherry Beasley in in uh, North Carolina. They can expand the majority, so they can do exactly that. And and somewhat to his credit, Biden has created this committee to look at the size of the court. I did not even realize the size of the Supreme Court has been changed seven times in U.S. history. Mm. So there is nothing stopping the Democrats from increasing the size of the court through a straight majority vote in the Senate and in the House. You can go from nine to thirteen. Biden could appoint four justices immediately, and that could actually make the composition of the court more reflective of the actual composition and sentiments and views of the country and offset basically the two seats that were stolen in terms of refusing to do their constitutional duty um, in terms of um, blocking Merrick Garland back when Obama was president. So yes, and this is a big part of why I wrote my book is because I don't think Democrats have enough conviction and courage and frankly, I think that flows from poor math skills to understand how much of the majority is behind them, because if they would take those strong stands, they would move things through Congress. They could get these things done, but they're too fearful in terms of their approach and they're timid in ways that are um, not at all matched in terms of the ferocity and the intensity that we're facing from the, the right wing and the modern day Confederates. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? How we win the Civil War, securing multiracial democracy and ending white supremacy for good. Author Steve Phillips right here with Stephen A. on No Mercy Podcast. Not to be hyperbolic, but give me the reverse issue. If the Democrats don't win the Senate, If they lose seats in the House, if Biden somehow in a couple of years either doesn't run or loses the presidential election, assuming he does run for re-election, what does America look like? That has a lot to do with what you're saying in this book. What does America look like if that kind of what some would term Armageddon comes to fruition? Right. And this is why this particular point in time, uh, uh, Ron Brownstein, the writer for The Atlantic, talked about how the this period in time in the 2020s can very much reflect the 1850s and that we have these two fundamental different coalitions in this country. He calls coalition to restoration and coalition of um, um, transformation. And I call it the new American majority and the, and, and the modern day Confederates, but they're very clear. I mean, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas was clear in his decision of overturning Roe v. Wade that he wants to go after uh, LGBT equality and marriage equality. They want to roll back all of the progress that have, we have made towards being a multiracial democracy. It really is a thing of making America white again. And they're actually talking about, they've li- let, laid out, if they get back in power, all the different pieces, the ways they're going to dismantle the government backtrack and all efforts towards equality that we've been moving, that we've been advancing. So the stakes are enormous. And that's why this year and the next couple of years are really fundamental around the trajectory, right? So we had the first black president. Mm-hmm. It's no accident that someone like Trump was elected in backlash to the first black president and that we ousted him. Is there anything that finds you as a black man who's a fabulous author of this book? Is there anything as a black man that has you looking at us as a black community and saying, 
okay, there's some culpability here on your part. There's some things we can do better. There's some things we should have already done better. If so, what are those things? I would say fundamentally it's voting, right? I mean, Obama said in one of these, uh, one of his speeches, I think it was in 2016. Don't boo, says, vote. Exactly. Don't <laughs> boo, vote. Right. And so in most of these states, in Texas, in Florida, in Georgia, in North Carolina, there are more eligible non-voting Black people than the margin of difference in the elections. And so if we turn out and vote in massive numbers, we can very much accelerate the changes that we're trying that we need to see occur. So that's the fundamental point. Are we going to be engaged? Are we going to recognize our power? And are we going to be able to bring that to bear? So that I think is the primary issue I would raise in terms of culpability um, um, from our community. We're talking to Steve Phillips right here with Stephen A. on the No Mercy podcast. I'm wondering right now, because based on what you're talking about, you know, we're in a world of trouble. We've got to take this with the level of seriousness that it deserves. And one of the things that has alarmed me and has quite frankly disgusted me and frustrated me is that when I see, because of the aftermath of pandemic, the robberies and the violence in the streets, what appears to be mayhem, St. Louis, Chicago, you know, uh, the streets of New York City in terms of some of the shenanigans that have taken place. What alarms me about that is that I never believe it's as bad as it seems. However, sir, I know that that mechanism was used to influence votes time and time and time again throughout American history. How concerned are you that law and order, which a guy like Lee Zeldin, a gubernatorial candidate in New York going up against Governor Hochul, he's talking about what that's his number one mission to address crime in New York. The day he's the first day he's in office and you hear this from others as well. What level of concern do you have that that is going to work since it is a strategy that was clearly utilized in the past? Right. I mean, it's utilized in the past going, going as you, you had mentioned, Nixon's uh, law and order campaign in 68 and going all the way back to 1712 when South Carolina passed these black slave laws because of the barbarous nature of uh, black people. So this law and order argument has long been used to scare white people about people of color. But it works. And so it works, Steve. Well, it does work with a segment of white people. But the composition of the electorate has changed. And so, as we had talked about, people of color have gone from 12% of the population in the 60s to 40% today. So the And some of those whites are actually with us and are not influenced by those types of attacks. So I believe strongly, and I believe the data shows strongly, that if that there are the great, the upside exists in terms of organizing, registering, mobilizing people of color to vote in larger numbers, that will offset what they're trying to do in terms of uh, inflaming the fears of whites. And so that's what I really try to lay out in the second half of my book is what I call this liberation battle plan of five case studies of where we have actually beaten back these attacks, Georgia and Arizona and Harris County, Texas, et cetera. And they've done that by maximizing the turnout of voters of color. And that reduces the uh, influence of these appeals to white fears and, and anxiety. Just to remind the audience, in case I didn't say it earlier, part one of this book, all right, we are still in a civil war. Part two, how we win, starting at the beginning. I want to go to the five category, the five elements that you highlighted in this book, because I think it's important. 
Never give an inch. That doesn't sound like much compromise, Steve Phillips. How are we going to get to where we need to go without compromise? Explain that. Well, it's about winning. I didn't say how we're going to compromise. I said how we're going to win this civil war. (laughs) So never giving an inch is how the civil war began. They refused to accept the election results in 1860. And rather than do that, they went to war. And you you know, fast forward all the way up to November 2020. That was Donald Trump. He was not going to give an inch, even though he had lost. He was going to try to overturn the election results. So we have to dig in and understand the ferocity with which we are up against. But if we are tenacious and, 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 for, and, and determined on our end, we can withstand that. But first, we have to understand the intensity of it. Number two, ruthlessly rewrite the laws. Ruthlessly? Oh, very much so. In the, in the, same, in the, in the, in the same sense. Like already again, from 1860 to today, 1860s to today. So we passed the Voting Rights Act with, with the uh, 15th Amendment, providing the voting rights uh, mm-hmm. uh, protections for people of color over, with great difficulty over the objections of the then president, Andrew Johnson, who was elevated by the assassination of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And immediately there was efforts to undercut and, dis- and, and, and diminish and, and segregate out the reach of those measures. And also with the same with the 14th Amendment in terms of uh, uh, equal protection of the law. So you get Plessy versus Ferguson saying, yes, you can't racially discriminate, but separate versus equal is okay. And so that's an example of rewriting the laws. So the the 15th Amendment says you can't have racial discrimination in voting. But in Texas, all the way up to the 1930s, they had white primaries, which I didn't even know about. Carol Anderson describes this in her book, uh, One Person, No Vote. Only white people could vote in Democratic primaries. It was explicitly and unapologetically white primaries. That's rewriting the laws so that they can preserve white power. And you take that all the way up to 2021, where all of these different southern and southwestern states were rewriting their voting laws because they had lost. And so, well, they were like, well, what did, oh, so in in different places, you had, in Georgia, you had increased people of color. So we're going to restrict Right. what you can do in terms of drop boxes and ways that make it easier to vote. So it's been a core part of the Confederate battle plan since the 1860s. I'm a bypass three and four, distort public opinion, silently sanction terrorism. That was three and four. I'm going to get right to number five, play the long game. What's the long game? So the long game was, well, it's think, not just being concerned about this immediate fight, but what's the, how do you reestablish power? So most fundamentally to this country, it really was the after the 1876 election, where again, the Confederate forces had lost the election, but it was a very, very closely fought battle after the election. Who's going to prevail? And they were like, all right, we'll surrender the White House and the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, but you have to give us back the South. And so they gave up the White House uh, to, to, to Hayes but they withdrew the federal troops from the South so that the slave owners could take back control of the South, which then threw us into racial segregation, white nationalism for a hundred years. That's a long game. And then you see it now playing it out. We mentioned Roe v. Wade. They've been playing this long game around how do they stack the court? How do they undermine the, the, un, the principles? For 50 years, they've mm-hmm. been planning and building towards undermining Roe v. Wade. So they're playing a long game, and we need to play one as well. Let me ask a very pragmatic question to you, sir. With the pandemic having come, 
although in some people's eyes it's faded and others it is not, it's still here alive and well. With the job market being compromised, with careers being altered because of it, with an economy based on inflation and, and, you know, an impending recession and all of this other stuff. How do you say to most American citizens, care about these things at the expense of potentially being able to sustain, if not elevate your quality of life? Because that's the challenge every day. People are get they're so caught up. Most of us are all caught up in just making sure that our lives are a bit more peaceful, that we're making it to the next day, that we can pay our bills, that we can go through this rat race, these trials and tribulations, these struggles uh, before we just end up on the other side, just okay or whatever, anything to survive. That's what most people are usually doing in American society in particular. How do you tell them that's a concern that's legitimate, but you know what? This is deeper, and if you have to sacrifice some things along that side, that's what you need to do. How do you do that, Steve Phillips? Well, the 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 pandemic is a great example of what's possible, and so I actually use this as an exam as the opening to my epilogue, where I talk about universal basic income, the work that Michael Tubbs had done up in Sacramento, which really drew upon Dr. King's you know working around uh, we should have we could end poverty by ending poverty and actually giving people money to have a basic income. And so that was like a, a somewhat marginal concept until the pandemic hit. And then everybody actually then started getting checks during the whole pandemic piece. So it reshaped uh, our conception of what the social contract actually is. Mm-hmm. And it's in looking at working conditions now. Do we all need to get into a car and drive to a big building and be in that big building in order to actually get the work done? And clearly, no. And the pandemic has opened up that window. So what the pandemic has done, I think, is create an opportunity for us to have a broader conversation around the social contract and what our relationships are to one another. And so that's, I think, a one fundamental piece. And never, even in the worst moments of the, pand- of the pandemic and that, you know, Trump trying to undermine it and all of that, there was, there really was, there was not majority support for this notion that people are being marginalized or attacked or uh, uh, you know, penalized in some fashion by having to wear a mask or having to go through some public mm-hmm. health um, precautions. And the other thing we need, really need to do is we need to lift up the voices of those who have been affected. But there's a very pernicious reality is that the people most impacted have died. And so they're not in the current debate, but those families, those friends who have seen the impact of a public health calamity and have experienced that pain, they're part of our social family too. And so we have to bring those voices into the mix and have a sense of mutual accountability for all of us. Before I let you get on out of here, there's a couple of things that I wanted to touch on as well, because um, obviously um, you have an answer for how progressives and people of color can lead the way to end the civil war and say the fact that Trump is not the president and Democrats currently control Congress is proof that we can win moving forward. I think the fact that Trump is not in office, the fact that people are looking at trillions of dollars in debt, the fact that they know that a recession is looming, the fact that they expect the economy to be compromised and employment to be compromised makes the task daunting. And it's one of the things that makes Trump relevant still. That's my thinking. You obviously say otherwise. Explain. Well, all of these issues are going to be um, in the in the mix and in conversation. 
But what, again, what the pandemic showed us and reaction to the pandemic showed us is what's possible in terms of a societal response. And so when the first multi-trillion dollar package went through in just a matter of weeks in March 2020, somebody tweeted, I should find out who actually said this, somebody tweeted out, oh, so we could afford reparations. And so (laughs) you had corporations lining up, airline industry, et cetera, anti-socialist entities wanting massive handouts from the government to keep their businesses afloat. So fundamentally, I, there's much more that's possible in terms of rethinking the economy. So we can't just be in this narrow framework around like, yes, we're headed for a recession, et cetera, et cetera. Things like debt relief, things like student uh, uh, um, uh, rental student relief. loans. Yep. Right. That the, the, the rental piece, the, you know, that, that, that relief. Being able to look at things that like someone was saying, why don't we, it gets back to the universal basic income concept. Why is Social Security start at 65? What if we started at birth? and created an investment pool that people could use to be able to develop their talent and pursue their interests and let their creativity flourish. All of that is possible if you put forward a compelling vision and and a move forward an agenda based upon our values and our highest Mm -hmm. and best values. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that's not happening yet because people don't believe the politics are there. And I was getting ready to say, don't you think it's too late to pull that off? I remember seeing somebody, I believe, is giving a, a you know, giving a little speech on social media, and they talk about how you can you can get a car loan, you can get a home loan, you can get a student loan, you can get a lot of loans. Okay, what you can't get so easily is a loan to own your own business, to start your own business, because you'd be investing in yourself, and that would basically go against the system's ability to exterminate or marginalize or to a lesser degree pigeonhole you from aspiring to be all that you can. And so that's what you surmise when you look at the system that we're living in. You think that we can overcome that with an election? You think that we can overcome that in the foreseeable future? Well, it's not just with an election, but I think what we've seen in this past few years is that there are these moments where we actually get a glimpse into the potential of what's possible and the broader appetite for a much more radically redesigned social contract. And so after George Floyd, we had a month or two of people really being concerned about addressing systemic racial inequality in this country. And so Angela Blackwell, founder of PolicyLink, wrote this excellent piece in the New York Times saying that if banks really care, banks, many of which made their money off of the actual slave trade in terms of becoming profitable going concerns, they could actually forgive interest for mortgage holders, African-American mortgage holders. And so they're creative concepts like that, which are very doable if there's the appetite for it. And so what I'm arguing is that because of this demographic revolution, where the communities that have been exploited and who have created the wealth of this country are Mm -hmm. not such a large part of it, and we have white allies, that's a majority which can totally reconceptualize the social contract and can advance a whole different agenda within this country if we have the confidence and conviction to proceed in that fashion. Before I let you get on out of here, Mr. Steve Phillips, Texas, the state of Texas, page 279, you wrote, uh, Texas shapes contemporary politics. Quickly, can you explain that? The state of Texas shaping contemporary politics with with Governor Abbott at the helm, right, as as we speak, that shaping contemporary politics? Why? Right. Well, Governor Abbott and then their their gerrymandering of their congressional districts and then the, you know, having uh, Republican senators there in a state that's 38 percent white. 
in a state where African-Americans and Latinos are the majority of the people within that state. So transforming Texas will transform politics in this country in the same way that Georgia did. You flipped two seats in the Senate, took away them from Republicans, gave them to the, the, to the successor to Martin Luther King and to John Ossoff, and that changed the whole Senate. Similarly, that can actually happen in Texas if we invest in the work of voter mobilization, the work, uh, the work of groups like Texas Organizing Project to change the composition of who is voting so that looks like more who is the composition of who's actually in the state. I'm going to throw out the word petrified before I let you get on out of here. How petrified are you that Herschel Walker could be the next senator of Georgia? Well, embarrassed is a good word in terms of the <laughs> fact that he's even being considered. It's really mind-boggling. So that they really think that this black man who lived in Texas should be the governor of be the senator from Georgia until a black man got elected senator from Georgia. And that somebody who's so incompetent for certainly for that office would be taken this seriously is extremely embarrassing as a black man. I'll say that much. Well, they're doing it because they know they can manipulate. I mean, he's going to vote the way they want him to vote without even thinking. Well, that's what their perception is. Cynical. It's a cynical thing like, oh, so black folks are getting elected in Georgia now. Let's go get somebody black to have them be the, the candidate. But here's the problem, Steve Phillips. And this is where the Democrats have to be called to the carpet. If they believed that based on what they've done recently, just months ago, if they believed that he was going up against someone that they could sure as hell defeat, the Democrats would have campaigned for Herschel Walker just so he could lose to the Democrat down the line. That's the kind of stuff they've been, they've been exercising now. Remember that? They did do that in some of the House races. And there was, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, too, it's too clever by half and it's too cute in terms of trying to be manipulative. And it doesn't proceed from good math, which is understanding that the majority of people are actually with us. Mm -hmm. And that if we organize and invest and move our resources into getting more people of color to vote, we don't have to engage in these cute games of trying to you know, be, uh, play cutesy the way that they did in some of those races. Last question before I let you get on out of here. Um, I know it meant, first of all, it means a lot to me that you took time to talk with me. Uh, this book is, is a sensational book, and, and, and I, I'm just going to encourage as many people as I can to read it. I ask you, as you sit here with me right now, what word is more applicable to you as we speak, particularly with the November 8 elections looming? Are you hopeful or are you petrified? I'm more hopeful than I am petrified. And I, okay. that's in terms of looking at the arc of how these different, and, it, and that's what was so affirming about being able to write this book is that I could put the current moment in context. So Georgia succeeded from the union and, and, and Margaret Mitchell and Gone with the Wind, uh, which is set in, in, in Georgia, uh, says, fortunately, we didn't succeed during uh, December because that would have ruined the Christmas, the Christmas holidays. The county where Gone with the Wind is set had an increase in votes of black votes between 2016 and 2020, which was more than Biden's margin of victory in Georgia. So the trend is very clear to me. Jesse Jackson used to talk about the hands that once picked cotton can now pick presidents. And mm. we see it happening. So fundamentally, that leads me on the, makes me lean towards the hopeful element of this, although there is plenty to be petrified about as well. Mm. 
Steve Phillips, author, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Sir, an honor and a privilege to talk to you, sir. I'm really, really glad we had this conversation. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having you on again in the future to talk about some of these things. I'd love it. The honor has been mine. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Take care. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Thank you again to the one and only Steve Phillips for that fantastic conversation that we just had. Clearly, there's a reason for long. And I know that obviously he's clearly, I don't, I don't want to use the word liberal, but you know what his position is. I don't view it as tilting left or right. I don't view it as politics. I view it exactly as what it is, black and white. It's just that simple. Black folks in the United States of America are finding themselves in a very, very perilous state at this particular moment in time. Liberals will say, you know what? It goes for all of us because Roe v. Wade ain't about color. That's about gender. And nobody is saying that you're wrong. But when you take into account the threat of Jim Crow laws being revisited in the eyes of some people. Where white empowerment and white supremacy seems to be getting catered to by a few. It's something that can't be ignored. And I want to make sure that I make this point. I don't believe for one second that most white folks in America think like that at all. I won't even go as far as to go off on some of these politicians by accusing them of that. I think a lot of them, just like I said to Steve Phillips, it ain't about supporting Trump or the quote unquote mega movement. It's about having your seat reserved at the U.S. Capitol in the House of Congress. You don't want to lose your power position. And the constituency has said, Vote this way or we're going to get rid of you. Support this or we're going to get rid of you. I will remind y'all of a show that I had just weeks ago when I talked to Sean Hannity. Okay? I don't agree with his politics, but I've known him for years. And I don't believe I have to agree with your politics to love you or despise you. I don't roll like that. I know how he is with me personally. I know what battles we have and what debates we have back and forth and why. I don't agree with his stuff more than half the time. But you ain't going to get me to call that man names and forget that we've been friends for years. That ain't happening. You can get the hell over that. And just like he's a friend, I've become fast friends with Chris Cuomo. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. I'll be talking to Bill O'Reilly soon. And Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. I'm going to talk to Jesse Waters and Karen Hunter and Joe Madison. I'm going to hear everything. I'm going to agree with what I agree with. I'm going to disagree with what the hell I disagree with. Pointing you to people far more knowledgeable about the nuances of politics than I may be. But I'll be damned if I'm devoid of common sense. We're in a world of trouble. Because in Trump, you are dealing with a different person. You are dealing with a person who cares about himself. 
And he is willing, in my opinion, to bring the world come crashing down to get his way. He is truly a person that will burn the house down. He is a narcissist plus 10. Ladies and gentlemen, what are you going to do about that? Because you see, it ain't ordinary Republicans from the days of John McCain and Bob Dole and George H.W. Bush and people like that running for office. They respected the system. These folks don't give a damn. They don't care. They will burn the house down to get their way. If you have that, what do you have? And on this note, I'm speaking to both sides. Extreme progressives and extreme conservatives. How do you have a society if there's nothing but mayhem? You literally have some people, and these are a very select few people, but you literally have some people who wouldn't mind pushing us back to the days of slavery just to get their way. And on the other side, we have folks who are so extreme, they want to burn down the, 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 the shield of capitalism altogether, even though that's what America is all about. Bring us fascism. Bring us socialism. Bring it all. We don't care. Where's that going to get you? As I was alluded to just a few minutes ago, ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you that Liz Cheney, the Republican out of Wyoming, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, who was in the House, who's obviously led the charge for the January 6th Insurrection Committee, trying to make sure Trump is never allowed to run for office again. That same Liz Cheney voted with Trump 93% of the time. Ted Cruz was on a few the other day. Fumbling, bumbling, mumbling. I could have told him, you can't mess with them women. Whoopi Goldberg and Sonny Houston. I mean, I mean, who do you think you're messing with? You can't mess with them. I mean, you got to know your stuff backwards and forwards, and you got to be direct, concise, to the point, and unapologetic to get them to pause. You stutter, they're going to be all over you. He rolled up in there because he had a book to sell and couldn't even admit that Joe Biden won the election over Donald Trump fair and square. Ladies and gentlemen, does Ted Cruz strike you as somebody that's scared to speak his truth? But he did that day, didn't he? Because he knows those voters were turned against him in Texas because it's not just about how you vote. It's about how you act and what you say and what you disseminate, how you come across. Ladies and gentlemen, I haven't seen anything like this in my lifetime. And there's only one way to address this. Go to the polls and vote. If you went to the polls, I know Hillary Rodham Clinton won the popular vote in 2016. I'm sick and tired of hearing that noise. Democrats, we usually win the popular vote. Damn that. 
There's an electoral college vote that goes with presidential elections. You're fully aware of it entering every election. You know the rules and regulations. You know what it takes to win, and you lost. I don't want any excuses. You don't go to a football game looking to dunk. You don't go to a basketball game looking to score a touchdown. You know the rules and regulations of the game you partook in. Accept the consequences. And just like Trump has to accept it or had to accept it eventually, even though he never fully did, he accepted it enough to take his behind right out of the White House, didn't he? And let Air Force One fly him to Mar-a-Lago, didn't he? He still left. Just like he had to accept it, whether he wants to admit it or not. Black folks, more than Latinos, you got to accept your responsibility in all of this. It's not just about making sure enough people vote for Hillary Rodham Clinton. It's about making sure you vote for her in the districts that were necessary for her to win. It didn't happen. And as a result, Trump was in office. Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. And not one, not two, but three Supreme Court justices end up being selected by President Donald Trump. And the conservatives got a 6-3 majority. If that doesn't happen, he never overturns Roe v. Wade. The, the courts never overturn Roe v. Wade. Never. We heard Steve Phillips. I've been bringing up this point forever. Why isn't anybody else bringing up the point? The fact of the matter is, Democrats got the House. They got a tie-breaking vote in the Senate. They got a Democrat in the White House. What the Supreme Court said is that Roe v. Wade shouldn't be a federal issue. It should be a state's issue. I don't agree with their judgment. I don't like their judgment. I don't like the fact that it was overturned. I believe in a woman's right to choose. But the fact remains is all they said is that it's not a federal issue. That's why I asked Steve Phillips, did Congress have the power to bring federal legislation to the desk of the president and the president could write a new abortion law? Into law. He said yes. Well, why the hell hasn't it been done? Is it possible that it's something you, 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 you're utilizing for the campaign for the purposes of winning an election? I don't know the answer to that question. Seems quite suspicious. There's a lot that can be done. But here's the thing. There's a lot that's going to be done. If folks don't get to the poll. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't like to be insulting of anybody. I just want to be, uh, I like to call it like, I, like it is. I don't know what's wrong with Herschel Walker in Georgia. I don't know about his personal life. I'm not asking. But I know that brother seems as dumb as a bag of bricks based on what he has appeared to look like and sound like in public forums. Nothing else. I know nothing else. Only when I've seen him in public forum. Why? Stephen A., how could you say that? How could you say that? Let me paraphrase a quote he gave. You see, the clean air in America went 
and got mixed up with the dirty air in China. And that sort of messed with the clean air. And as a result, we, we got to get rid of it. The man said we didn't need any more trees. That's Herschel Walker. That's what he said. Now, I don't know much about Raphael Warnock. But I don't know if I've ever heard a politician sound that dumb in my life. And that's saying a lot because I've heard a few dumb sounding ones. Notice I said dumb sounding. I don't know whether they're dumb or smart or whatever. I'm just talking about how they sound. That was Herschel Walker. He could be a United States senator representing the state of Georgia come November 9th. Y'all better wake up. You better pay attention. A civil war may be going on right now. Armageddon might be on the way. Some would argue it was prophesied anyway. Some would say, hey, I don't think it's going to be that bad. Here's the real question. Do you really want to find out? Especially when it ain't even necessary. All you got to do is be active. Actively involved. Make sure your voice is heard. Be a participant. If you don't vote, I don't want to hear what the hell you have to say. Because you've done nothing to inject the change or the status quo that you swear you're looking for. And that's on you. Thanks again to Steve Phillips. Thanks again to this wonderful audience for tuning in and listening to me as you always do. It's always greatly appreciated. I'm sincerely grateful. My podcast, No Mercy, is coming at you every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Things are getting intense. I'm loving it. The more I do it, the more I love having my own podcast. But not as much as I love knowing that you're listening. Podcast has been doing very well. Numbers are growing. Still doing my thing. And this is despite the fact that I got a day job doing sports. But it all goes back to what I always tell y'all before I sign off of every show. You don't have to know sports to know mercy. That's why y'all are tuning in. That's why I'm grateful. And that's why we're going to continue on this ride together. This is Stephen A. Signing off. Until next time. Peace and love, everybody. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts. Guess who's got a memoir coming out, ladies and gentlemen? Yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. It's entitled Straight Shooter, and it's available right now for pre-order. I have signed these books, just so you know. So you can visit straightshooterbook.com to order your autographed copy today. In the book, I talk about my life before ESPN, growing up in Hollis, Queens, New York, how sports proved to be my salvation. I talk about some of the mistakes I've made in my life and my impact on the world of sports. The book is called Straight Shooter, and it's written to help motivate you to overcome setbacks that maybe prevent you from reaching your dreams. So go right now and order your autographed copy of my memoir, straightshooterbook.com. Don't wait. It's entitled Straight Shooter. Check it out. Don't miss it.